Welcome back to another exciting episode of the Apollo 13 Minute, a show where each and every day, Monday through Friday, we go over one minute of probably the greatest space history movie ever made, the 1995 Ron Howard-directed feature, Apollo 13. I'm one of your hosts, Jim O'Kane of TVDads.com. And I'm Hal Ryan of the Experimental Aircraft Association and the Rocketeer Minute. Uh, Hal, thank you very much for sitting in for the, uh, not vacationing, but on assignment, Chris Henry, So uh, who will return shortly. He's temporary loss of signal, but he'll be back. Yeah. <laughs> yes. And we're watching, uh, we're still back with uh, Jules Bergman here. Um, J- Jules was my, by the way, he, Jules was my choice of, uh, if I wanted science information, he was the go-to guy. Of all the, I mean, if you wanted a lot of chit-chat, you'd go with uh, uh, Wally and Walter on uh, on CBS. <laughs> well, yeah, and Bergman was always so, uh, he was so matter-of-fact, and, you know, he wasn't afraid to deliver the, the bad news, just or you know, just just the straight, uh, the straight news. And he was on ABC covering space stuff forever, wasn't he? I mean, he started oh, yeah. even be- before Mercury and went all the way through Apollo Soyuz, and then came back did some shuttle stuff and Viking and Voyager. Yeah, he was a um, fa- fascinating guy. I mean, he was on there with Frank Reynolds, and they always seemed very serious, and they really they all seemed like they knew what they were talking about. Yeah, he did a uh, in 1960. He did a book about the X-15 which I remember uh, being on the shelf when I was a kid. And then uh, um, are, later, are you sure that wasn't, are you sure that wasn't Martin Caden? Yeah, I'm pretty sure that this was, oh, I know okay. Martin Caden did one. Yeah. And, but it's funny you mentioned Martin Caden. So Martin Caden big in the, uh, the warbird and aviation world, restored a lot of warbirds and things, but also wrote, uh, wrote a novel that became uh, the $6 million man. Right. The TV Cyborg. series. And yeah, right. Wrote Cyborg. And you know who guested on an episode of The Six Million Dollar Man actually playing himself, not just in old footage? Um, wait, I know this one, but I can't think of who it was. <laughs> Jules Bergman. Jules, Jules Bergman. Okay, yeah. I didn't so know. So put on your seatbelt, Jim. We're going full circles here. Yeah. We're just, oh we're my just spinning in circles. Down the, um, down the rabbit hole, yeah. Yeah. So he was in an episode called The Rescue of Athena One. And to show you how I did it, it was in 1974, and it was about the first U.S woman astronaut which hadn't happened in reality yet but oh my uh she's going up to skylab and uh wonder of wonders uh you know she gets in trouble and needs to be rescued so steve austin and uh, another guy have to go up and help i didn't know he could jump that far that's amazing uh, it's he i believe he took a rocket for this particular oh okay but yeah they've got jules bergman reporting on it just oh yeah uh, just good playing himself the role he was born to play yeah, crossover for uh, for ABC for ABC's uh, yeah. self promoting uh, uh, cast list. Um, exactly. You know, and, and Martin Caden, of it, course, also wrote uh, Marooned, so he's he's oh, well, right. yeah. well into the field. And he wrote a book called The Saga, or something like The Saga of Iron Annie, about uh, restoring yeah. the Ju fifty two. Ju yeah, flew on the air show circuit. And Bergman learned to fly too, and he actually wrote a book called Anyone Can Fly, and he documented his flight training experiences and stuff. And so. Um, Excellent book, you know, a little bit dated now from the 60s, but still a lot of it uh, certainly still applies about, uh, you know, what it's like to learn and fly, what that process uh, is. I'm glad he never wrote the uh, the sequel called I Stand Corrected. I- <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> Although it's it's funny, just before we started tonight, my uh, wife sent me a, a clip, an interview of Ryan Reynolds uh, on uh, 
uh, was it so Graham Norton, the Graham, Graham Norton show? Oh, yeah, yeah. And he's talking about, uh, you know, what he was doing for First Man to play Neil Armstrong and things and the multi-axis trainer. And then he went on to say, you know, Neil Armstrong was such a passionate pilot. You know, he was flying, he, Armstrong was flying before he was driving and this kind of thing. He decided he would learn to fly. And I'm, so I'm getting all excited. Cool, right? You know, Ryan Gosling's a pilot. This is great. And he said, and he got to the point where, um, where he was supposed to do his first stall. And he just said, this seems like a bad idea. I'm going to spend my time learning other things. And he walked away from his flight training. Uh, but, uh, but darn it, he was, uh, he was on the way. Because on the, on the if he was a pilot, then we would bring him out here to uh, Oshkosh this coming summer because we're going to screen probably. I guess I can't announce anything yet. We're, prob- we're planning on screening First Man, though, at our big uh, outdoor uh, inflatable screen movie theater. Ah, okay. I I remember uh, Chris. We had talked uh, about about this movie offline, and he said the the thing that he didn't like about uh, First Man was the language because he was hoping to use it to uh, you know screen for school kids coming to visit the museum. Oh, sure. And it's like, well, can't yeah. show that movie. Yeah, it would be interesting to see if there if there's a a TV cut that shows up too. Yeah, yeah, you know, we'll run into that on occasion as well. Although we've shown uh, we've shown Apollo thirteen, and. Uh, there's a little bit of language, even in this minute. There, Marilyn yeah. has a has a non family friendly word. Um, my wife uh, just walked in and put a note in front of me that says Ryan Gosling, and I, yes. I think I said Ryan Reynolds, didn't I? You at did, some yes, point. but it's okay. Well, I, I think would I love said to Gosling see, uh, again later. Yes, you did. You but, did. It, but it sounds good. It tells well. Right. <laughs> I was thinking, well, a Deadpool uh, Neil Armstrong movie would be fantastic. That would be pretty. I'd watch pretty that amazing. <laughs> but I don't think. I, I don't think it's fair that there are two famous Ryans right now. Yes. I think yes. one of them needs to change their names. Yeah, so, no, there's only only enough room for for one at a time. I mean, we had Paper Moon and, and Love Story, and then you know Ryan O'Neill right. had, a, had a stop, so the other Ryan exactly, so the other Ryans could come along. <laughs> so they don't really look look alike, but I, no. I don't know. that throws me off too. Um, Anna Kendrick looks like two other actresses to me, and I, I assume that Anna Kendrick is in everything, but she's actually only in a third of everything. The, one of them is Lake Bell, and I forget who the other, the other one's name, but I always yeah. munge them all together into one person. I, I had that problem about 15 years ago with Julia Stiles. I thought that every actress was Julia Stiles. It was like oh. somebody looked like this, you know, lanky uh, blonde woman who uh, had kind of a, uh, a large expressionless face. And, and so right. to me, if I didn't know who it was, I assumed they were Julia Stiles. Well, you should write her dating profile. You know, I'm I'm lanky and blonde and have a large expressionless face. You know, that sounds so appealing. Swipe Gosh. right. Yes. <laughs> wow. Well, uh, well. So anyway, we're in a very '70s. Uh, I love I love the Lovell li- living room because so many of us grew up in in that kind of living room with the giant oh, yeah. console TV, Motorola, or actually that's the Zenith. The quality goes in before the name goes on. <laughs> and uh, and the giant and, the giant ashtray and the giant uh, lighter. Yep, that's uh, uh, and there's possibly a, a clicker associated with this one, but I just remember um, I, every time I see a TV like this, I remember uh, Mrs. Denton, one of our probably my first babysitter, the first babysitter I remember as a kid. We had a TV somewhat similar to that, maybe not the full-on console by the time I came along, but uh, similar. And when she went up to go, you know, change the channel, she'd get up and she walk over to the TV and kind of bend over, completely block it. And she would just twist the dial as fast and as hard as she could and then grumble about how there was nothing on. And just just cranking it through. And I thought, you're going to break our television, ma'am. But anyway. Well, that's that's the point where usually when the when the handle snaps off and you switch to the vice grip, 
boot. Yes, the, exactly. The, the standard tool of all color televisions of the time. Right. That is one of the phases of life yeah. of, a, of a 70s television is when yeah. you transition from knob to vice grip. <laughs> and and the, well, the little detail of the, uh, the VHF uh, knob on the top is well-worn, and the UHF was just kind of left behind. Which Oh, that's brilliant. You know, I never thought about that. But sure, yeah, nobody was watching... Uh, yeah, watching the, anything yeah. on UHF, or if you did, you had maybe had one channel. Yeah, it was something yeah. that you like had to watch for um, you know educational purposes, or there was the farm report. It was the only thing right. was up that far on the dial. When I was a kid in the Bay Area in the early '70s, we had, if I remember right, it was just one UHF channel. It was Channel 44, and that one was kind of cool because it was it was some local programming stuff, but it was also a lot of cartoons. So I was pretty oh, yeah. happy about that. Yeah, we had a really good horror show called in a, in the New York New Jersey area. Um, Zachary was on, and uh, he it was kind of a you know he he was the host of a of a horror movie thing, and he'd come on and just was very weird fellow. He looked vaguely like a vampire, but not quite, and just was very creepy. And uh, I think every every local town had their own version of a Zachary. But he, oh uh, sure, yeah, he was wor- worth worth trying to tune in a fuzzy VHF or uh, UHF channel <laughs> at the time. Now, have you? Uh, have you just for the fun of it? Because I know you, and uh, apologies, of course, as we're recording this, there's episodes I haven't heard at this point. But uh, figured out for sure if that's the proper TV guide for this week. That's sitting yes, on it top is. Of the it's television. exactly. Okay. It is exactly the right one for the uh, the week okay. beginning uh, April twelfth, uh, I think. Um, okay. But yeah, that's that's right on target. I, I'm not sure what makes me feel better about that: the fact that they got it right in the movie, or the fact that I knew you would know if I asked you, and you did. Yeah, and but in both instances, I feel better. To, uh, and Tom Hanks, I think, would have you know would have said, "No, I can't be in this movie now. You've gotten the uh, oh uh, yeah the TV guide wrong." Um, I'm just while we even while we speak, I'm looking up what the who the particular cover was. I forget who the cover was for uh, for that particular episode of 1970, but I'm sure the magic internet will tell me. Here we are, uh, April 11th, and it's Carol Burnett. Carol Burnett, oh, don't with the uh, with the lead, or, and it's drawn by Hirschfeld, so there's probably a million Ninas in her sweater. <laughs> and uh, the the chief article in it was, "Don't blame us for bad news." A TV news director's plea. So I guess you can't blame them. You have to blame North American Rockwell. That's <laughs> that's the bad news <laughs> of this week. Uh, only fifteen <laughs> cents, by the way, for the for that TV guide. Really, and uh, it, quite. A, I mean, of all the. Of all the contemporary periodicals, I think TV Guide is the best snapshot of what was going on in the world for you know back back then. If you wanted to look at the '60s and '70s, um, that was that was the place to go. Yeah, you just uh, look, to, at the, to look at even just pan at, across the covers week to week, and yeah, yeah, and get such a good idea. And uh, we get to a scene with uh, with the two Lovell girls. Uh, they are you know looking on as Jules Bergman tells them that Daddy's you know Daddy might not get back. And again, there's a uh, Mary Kate Shellhart who I've I've reached out to a couple times, but I can't seem to find her. But is she, she spends, the younger of the two or the older? Daughter? The older one, and she spends okay. most of the movie crying. She has to have uh, red eyes through this pretty much the entire movie. I feel you know either she's complaining about the Beatles breaking up or going oh, to see Dad or it, Daddy might die. So. I can't. I can't place who she looks like. It's like if I watch this, if it were, she's no Julia Stiles. I'll tell you that. No, she's <laughs> she's not. There's there is an expression on her face, and her face is average sized. I would say. Um, yeah, she she could be like she could almost be like a young Cecily Strong from Saturday Night Live or something. Oh, she, okay. She yeah. looks like looks like somebody. Yeah, yeah. Just a really remarkable actress, considering the amount of emotional 
carnage she has to suffer through the entire movie. There's never right. there's never a moment when she's like, "Oh, this is great. I'm so happy about stuff." It's it's not <laughs> it's, that. It's just she's um she's like Summer on uh, uh, Rick and Morty. She's <laughs> constantly <laughs> put upon. Um, but uh, I, I do. Oh, and this the other actors in this it, we're we're seeing Pete and Jane Conrad. Uh, listening on the phone while uh, while Barbara is talking. Uh, well, Susan, uh, no, well, well, Marilyn is getting my '60s female names mixed up. Well, Marilyn uh, Lovell is is talking to NASA. Um, the fellow playing Pete Conrad is the fellow that played um, Frank Borman in uh, From the Earth to the Moon. Uh, it's a, oh. a, uh, he's an actor named David Andrews. He's also responsible for Skynet in one of like, I think it was like Terminator Three. He's the the bad guy in Terminator yeah. Three, He's and he just his head, his whole facial shape and stuff, which uh, you can you can see in around second twenty eight of this. He just looks like Frank Borman. This is you know this is Frank Borman come alive. Like you know yeah. again in in his uh, in, in his seventies rendition. Boy, he really um, does. He really yeah, has that and, look. And we know because we've seen. <laughs> That's right. We've, we've seen him up close. We've uh, we've. Watch Frank Borman mock us for not being able to close a door. Close a door. <laughs> uh, but uh, a very. How uh, many people out there have been insulted by an Apollo astronaut? <laughs> it's a, it's a rare yeah. distinction. <laughs> just, just nothing like a put down from a guy who's been on the other side of the moon. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, because, because prior to that point, I was really feeling like we were pretty much equals to begin with. Yeah, yeah, you know, but, yeah, but then he has to hit me with the door he thing. He has to bring it, bring it, yeah, bring up the. You can't can't get a door closed. By the way, did they ever yeah. fix that door up there? I I hope it's um, functional. The uh, <laughs> it's one of those things that sort of once it closes again, it seems like it's fine for a while. Oh, okay. And it, uh, you know, and it, it it's like a it's like when your car acts up and makes a yeah. funny noise. It never does it for the mechanic. It never seems yeah. to do it for our maintenance guys. Yeah, they the come in, they open effect. it, they close it, shrug. <laughs> it looks like it's fine, and uh, <sighs> it's only the next time. It's. Uh, I think the door knows when it's going yeah. to be an awkward, an awkward moment. <laughs> Is this a bad time? That's Fine, a, I'll break in. <laughs> exactly. Well, it's like here's a here's a weird uh, direction to go, um, a rabbit hole about a rabbit in uh, Who Framed Roger Rabbit. There's this great scene where he's Roger's been in handcuffs, and then uh, he's sort of struggling and everything else. And then he's able to shrink his hand down and slip it through the cuffs. And Eddie Valiant looks at him, you mean you could have gotten out of those handcuffs at any time? And Roger is just really mad. He comes back up and says, not at any time, only when it was funny. Yeah. <laughs> I, just, I just love that. So I think yeah, our, that, our door that, at, at It uh, did the provide studio, content. That's the, that's, that's the important thing. You know, yes, the thing it did. About, the thing about Lovell's house, it, uh, I would never update it. I mean, it, 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 you always watch these you know, HGTV shows where, where we're going to tear this out, we're going to put in... It's it's fine the way it is. That whole right, you know, the the little uh, '60s uh, kitsch things like the uh, the brick planter in the middle of the living room. Exactly, yeah, right under the okay. picture. It's, it's, yeah. It's, oh, what is the picture? Do we 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 must see that more clearly in other scenes. The picture right above that the plants um, there. I think it's I think it's more flowers. I, I've, okay. I've looked. I've tried to. I mean, this is the Blu-ray that we're looking at, but it's uh, it just looks like more flowers. Or um, I'm assuming that. You know, maybe maybe they found out from the little home what the what the original one looked like. Yeah, I wouldn't um, be surprised. And that's now an you could of, convince uh, me that it was one of those awful Emmett Kelly clown things that, that yeah. could see two legs and a body and 
yeah, stuff. Yeah, but... it might be a kid with big eyes or something. You know, <laughs> right, I, I exactly. can't can't tell from this distance. But I'm perfectly an... happy to go with flowers. A much that happier. Is, that is an awful lot of serpateria, the otherwise known as mother-in-law's tongues, the uh, the particular plant they're growing. And I do have a question. To the left of the lamp that's on the uh, end table, is that okay. a pepper? Is that a pepper mill? Um, let's see. I'm just seeing the very, very tip top of it at like second 23 or so. Yeah. I've tried to see other, um, other views of it earlier. It just doesn't seem to That's exactly up. what it looks like to me. It looks, it, depending on where it is, it's hard to tell in, in, in frame, like what plane it's on. Yeah. If it's, uh, if it's pretty close to the, to the camera and so it's fairly small, then it sure looks like a pepper mill, but it could be something bigger than that pretty easily. Yeah. It's just, um. Uh... It's peculiar. I don't, I don't know what it is, but it's just it'll just remain a mystery. Uh, although we'll just keep, we'll just keep watching for it in future episodes when they're sure. all waiting for a waiting for a reentry and things. So we'll, we'll keep keep an eye on that in a later <laughs> minute. And uh, I was wondering, uh, Pete Conrad's watch there is that a? Uh, I think that's a Mariner. I may be wrong. I'm I don't Let's know see, my scrubbing back and forth. It, yeah, I mean, it's you know your typical oversized aviator watch, but it, to me it looks kind of like a Rolex uh, Mariner. But I'm not a. Yeah, I'm, I'm not, not a, a watch I'm not an expert, but that would be my. That would be my layman's guess. Yeah, well, you are you are an aviator. What's your watch of choice? Uh, well, lately it's been an Apple Watch. Oh, okay. You know, just sort of sort of gadgety and and uh, and things like that. Um, <laughs> I don't. I was. Uh, I, I'm a complete gadget guy, but. My, uh, I was, it was crippled by, by an old friend of mine, Eric Flint, a guest on the Rocketeer Minute, once, sure. uh, the director of the Lewis Museum out there. He once told me, and it's, it's off color, so I have to be polite, but that the, uh, he told me this rule when I was an impressionable teen, and he made a lot of impressions on me at that age, huh. that uh, the complexity of a man's watch uh, is inversely proportional. Ah, understood. To, yeah. Just shall we say, the, just the overall extent of his manliness. Yes, <laughs> and uh, and so you know, from then on, we would joke as well. I I'm just strapping a rock to my wrist and call yeah. it a sundial. <laughs> Keep it as simple as possible. So I've, I've, in a way, he did me a favor because I'm I'm of the disposition where I could uh, I could see I, I could turn into a watch collector. At the, yeah. at the snap of a finger and suddenly wake up the next day with, you know. They make more than one of these? Watches. I'll get a different, yeah. Yes, exactly. Look how cool these all are. Yeah. And I, I've, so I've got, uh, I believe I have a total of four watches, including a, uh, I've got a Spitfire watch that was a gift from uh, the producers of the documentary, and then uh, and then a, a nice sort of daily Seiko, and, uh, uh, and then a much nicer, uh, very Art Deco dress watch that my wife got for me years ago that I wear on special occasions. And then, of course, the Apple the Apple yeah. thing, because why not strap a yeah. computer to your wrist? Sure, so they can talk to the other computer in your pocket. And, um, exactly. It, yeah, it's. Uh, I, I've I've stopped wearing a watch about maybe twenty years ago. I gave up on it because it was like there were there were clocks everywhere, and I didn't really, I didn't really need it once uh, once cell phones came along, and then. You know, it's funny how we've gone full circle. A hundred years ago, everybody carried pocket watches, and we're back to doing that. Um, it's just now you can call on your pocket watch, right? And they don't come with cool chains, which they or cool chains, which they should. Yeah, big brass ones. Oh. Or make a round a round phone would be great. I'd love to have like a, a circular, like a like a hockey puck sized phone. That oh, that wonderful. would be very cool. Uh, you know, when I was in uh, in high school, I got a Seiko digital watch that uh, um, you could. 
take off your wrist and then drop it into a, a keyboard. Oh. And it had, it was a, it was like a UC2000 or UC2200, something like that. And so you take the watch off, plug it in the keyboard. It had something like, uh, like a, a K of RAM in it. And you could, and then of course you could do calculator things, but, but it had a full QWERTY keyboard. Wow. And uh, so you could type things into it. And I, I learned, I never did this myself, but I did rent it to a couple of people who, uh, um, found out that uh, they could type notes for a test into ah. the watch. And it only has two buttons on the face, or actually two or four buttons. It's really simple face. It's mostly screen. And then, uh, you know, you scroll through things and, and bring up notes. So you're taking a test. Oh, I'm frustrated. I'm going to look at my watch. How much time do I have left? Oh, there's the answer. <laughs> so like I said, never did but, that myself, but I, I was complicit. Um, yeah, look, it's, it's 15 minutes after the capital of Costa Rica. Yes, um, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, it had uh, it had maybe a couple of K, and then you could even get a printer for it, which I thought was pretty hilarious. Um, and then a, a later, slightly later version, a year or two later, would actually run Microsoft uh, Basic. So you could wow. sit there and it's just put crazy. Put yes. let statements together. Um, yeah, I have a... I have an Apple Watch, but I hardly ever wear it. I try to remember to wear it. Usually, I wear it when I'm um, if I go out on my morning. What I pretend to call a run, but it's actually more like a a forced jog, and uh, it tells me how slow I'm going and how awful I'm doing for uh, my heart rate and stuff. So <laughs> that's good <laughs> to there, know, isn't it? It's there to punish you. Yeah, right. <laughs> it, it's interesting watching uh, Marilyn yelling at the people, and I I'm sure she was uh, having having some tough times with them, but I. From what I get the feeling in, in talking with, uh, at least with shuttle astronauts, uh, they said NASA is usually very outgoing to uh, uh, to the families. They they make sure that the families are in contact with uh, uh you know with what's happening, and I don't know. I I I wonder. I mean, hopefully we can get somebody somebody who was actually involved in there, one of the kids of the astronauts, to find out what the relationship was between NASA and uh, and the astronaut families. Sure. Um, but it's uh, you know this this is a dramatic uh, a dramatic moment. Um, right. one, and one, I, I wonder if she used that would have used that word to you know don't give me that NASA BS. Yeah. And it's yeah. it's kind of funny because it, it's she is married to a sailor. She is. That's true. And uh, and this is you know this is not 1955. This is 1970. Yeah. You know it's it's definitely later. Even though it's somehow the astronauts and their families feel like the. You know, they feel like the last of the '50s families and not the first of the '70s families. If that makes any sense. Yeah, it's that it's that crossover. One one thing that does there is an anachronism in this uh, in this particular minute where she's yelling on that uh, Harvest Gold phone. Oh the, yes. Uh, if you look at the base of the the phone, she has a modular jack plugged into the into the bottom of the phone. And uh, having having lived through that time, I can tell you that those phones were hardwired into from from the uh, from the handset to the. Oh, uh, right. Back to the base unit and even on the desktop. Um, and they were plugged in with a four pin rather than the RJ11 that we're m more familiar with. Or Look at that. that. Yeah, so it's that is an anachronistic phone, but a small. I, I can't believe Tom Hanks didn't walk right there. Now, yeah, now, I, now you can't help but look at it and it's very, very frustrating. Exactly. It's all I see. Uh, wow. It's so, Apollo 13, the one with the wrong phone. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but we finally do get back to. Um, we get back to space again, and uh, That's right. and and poor uh, poor Jim and, and and Fredo are trying to get the get the system up and running, 
and they missed missed the point in their checklist where nobody uh, nobody bothered to remember that the RCS isn't up in the LEM, and uh, they're spinning wildly out of control with uh, no way of stopping it. Because why not make it worse? Yeah, <laughs> <You know? laughs> and yeah, and this this really did happen. I mean, not 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 in this dramatic. I think they were just they were having a problem shutting down the computer without having all the systems running on the LEM. But it wasn't it wasn't as uh, dire as this. I mean, there's enough dire things going on, but it wasn't as dire as what was being shown here. Um, and they they really did have to get. You know, the the thing was that there wasn't a checklist for this, so they were making the checklist up as they were going along. And uh, um, have you have you been in a situation where you you missed the spot on your checklist while you were taking oh, off or landing? Absolutely. Um, not really taking off or landing, but certainly you know. During a pre-flight or before starting the engine, or sort of taxiing out, and uh, um, it's it's funny because you know you have a you have a varying relationship with checklists, and when you haven't been flying for a while, you know a checklist really becomes a to-do list. You read it and then you say, "Okay, I'm going to do that thing." You read it and you do that thing. When you get uh, you know when when you're flying much more frequently and and you know several times a week or something. And you you get that muscle memory, and you get you get what the airline pilots call a flow, um, where your hands are just hitting switches and doing this and doing that just automatically. Then the checklist becomes more of what it's actually you know more true to its name, in the sense that I'm checking. Yes, I did that. Yes, I did that. Yes, I did that. Um, but sometimes you can get in that point in kind of a kind of in the the middle where say I'm looking at the checklist, but I'm really just doing things for memory, double checking the checklist back and forth. And yeah, and you, yeah, you can you can miss something. Um, for the most part, there's not many things that you would miss that would be especially dangerous. And luckily, there's um, uh, in almost all cases there's a second opportunity. Like certainly before you're taking off, um, there's another opportunity to review everything and make sure that that you've got everything in the right position. And when I'm talking about maybe missing something, it might be something as simple as. Uh, setting the transponder from standby to altitude encoding, yeah, um, which is something you, you, you need to do and you need to have on and need to change, but it's not, um, you know, it's not going to be a, a safety issue unless you're operating in at O'Hare or someplace like that. And controllers suddenly can't, can't find you on radar, which is, you know, not the sort of flying that I typically do, but, yeah. um, but they're, you know, they're there for a reason and, and they're, they're important. It's just, you feel better when you're in that phase of doing everything and then letting the, and then letting the checklist back you up and saying, yep, I have done, I have done all of these things rather than that sort of, I've been away for a little while to do list kind of phase. Yeah. I, 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 we, as we, as we're recording this, it's the 10th anniversary of the uh, miracle on the Hudson. Oh, right. And um, I, if you, you know, all over the internet and on, on the news, they, they replay so much uh, so much of the flight and what was going on with the, uh, after the bird strike uh, uh, leaving LaGuardia. And the first thing that they do is reach for a checklist and go over, well, what do we have if we have both engines out? And then they, uh, the second, second in command is going through and reading through, here's what we're doing, here's what we're doing. And, and they, they had already contacted the tower, and he said, you know, send out a distress signal. He goes, well, we already did that. And, so, and they go to the next spot in the checklist. But it's, you know, that's, that's what you do in a bad situation is follow the, the rules that were laid out already. Right. And, you know, if I remember right, um, 
was he used to work with uh, with Jeff Skiles, who's the co-pilot on that flight with Sully, and met Sully and done, did a little bit with him with our organization as well. But uh, you know, if I remember right, there there wasn't much uh, procedure-wise for that uh, for the Airbus for a, a you know a both engine out scenario because it was so it was considered to be so nearly impossible. Yeah, yeah. So, and, and, well, now they know. So yes, and exactly. Now they know. And he said, and you can hear him reading, uh, reading the thing. And he says, you have to be at th- at least three hundred and fifty uh, knots. And he's like, well, we're not there. <laughs> right. It was yeah, only like two ten or something. And he's like, yeah, well, we'll try it anyway. So uh, it, it's it, it's amazing how I mean, it, you, there's a lot of these cockpit voice recording things that you can listen to on uh, on YouTube. Many and tragically, but but listening to that and just hearing them go through, you know, do A, B, and C. And just hearing their, uh, you know, their attention to that detail is like, here's this could save us, so let's go through this list carefully. Um, and you know, that's that's what they're doing. That's what they're doing here in Apollo 13 of making sure that you do the checklist right, and you know, heaven forbid Absolutely. the checklist is wrong. Well, as we talked about uh, recently, it, uh, I'm just astounded every time you revisit this to remember and realize that you know, Lem lifeboat was a was a thing it was a concept they yeah. come up with that they thought about and you know that's yeah, just it, it's, they, they, they may have practiced it once but it became the most important thing to know right. and uh you know it's quite a thing um one thing about the uh the, in this the last the final seconds here we get to see uh, uh mark mcclure as as glenn lunny but he will he will always be jimmy olsen to me i can't or or he'll be marty mcfly's older brother Dave. oh yeah exactly yeah. Exactly, and, uh, and every time I hear his name, I, I think of Phil Hartman from The Simpsons as Troy McClure. Troy McClure, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but uh, yep, that's Marty's big brother. He finally made something of himself. Yeah, yeah. He didn't have jerk. to work him all the way from McDonald's to this, and yes, exactly. and, and he didn't disappear. So that's that's true. He didn't thing. disappear. He did go back in time from eighty five yeah. to nineteen seventy, <laughs> but that's par for the course in the McFly family. I would watch that sequel. I will too. Uh, well, maybe, yes. maybe we are. Who knows? <laughs> wow. It very well could be. Well, well, a very entertaining and exciting minute here. I know we went, we went far afield, but that's you know that's the nature of this minute and that's the nature of the movie. <laughs> and, exactly. Uh, but uh, but we will continue on with uh, with more uh, mayhem in the skies uh, as we finish out the week tomorrow. Uh, for folks who haven't listened to previous episodes, you know where to find them. Or if you haven't, if you don't know where to find them, here's where you find them. You find them at Apollo13minute.com, Apollo13minute.com. You can go listen to all the previous episodes. We're also available iTunes or Google Play or wherever you get your podcast from. We're probably there. Just uh, type in Apollo 13 Minute and click uh, subscribe, and you'll get us hot and fresh every morning, Monday through Friday. If you want to reach out to us, we're always available on the social media. at uh, We're on the Twitter. We're on the Twitter at Apollo 13 Minute, and we're on the Facebooks at uh, Apollo 13 Mission Control. So you can reach out there. A lot of discussions, a lot of people telling us what we did wrong so please you know, come out and correct us it's always very intriguing uh, but we will be back uh, looks like we're coming up on uh, loss of signal in about 30 seconds so why don't we meet you here on the other side uh, tomorrow on the Apollo 13 minute